This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 181. As we continue on our Low Tox Mind mini-series, I have another beautiful show for you today with a woman called Sage Magdalene. And some of you guys might remember the very first show of 2020 that I did. If you haven't listened to it yet, it is a beautiful and therapeutic show to comfort you during this time of strangeness if you're listening in real time and in the middle of experiencing the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, So that was with Rebecca Wildbear. And today's show is with Sage Magdalene. And what these two people have in common is they are both guides and trainers for the Animas Institute, uh, the Animas Valley Institute, rather, which is an organization dedicated to supporting the underworld journey to soul initiation for present and future generations. Uh, So uh, Sage, for example, has the gift of hearing and reflecting deep stories of many beings, not just humans, and she invites people to thresholds and opens gates between worlds. Uh, Now, I don't mean um, getting in touch with your uncle who passed away 30 years ago. I mean more uh, getting in touch with your being and how your being identifies with other beings, uh, has certain affinities to other beings. We talk about the spider, for example, uh, moon, frog, human, river, stars, could be anything. And uh, she very expertly helps people navigate their way back to a deep connection with nature. I am personally fascinated with this work, very, very new to it myself, and why I think this is a beautiful show for you to listen to right now is because it invites us to reflect on uh, our dreams of childhood, how they might have been signals to sort of pave the way for us learning some of the great lessons in our life and how we might be able to use this time where many of us are confined to the walls of our home or in fact to any quiet time you experience down the track if that's not you right now uh, and, and and what you can turn the volume up on around you in nature in other beings uh, while things are turned down on your day-to-day life. Uh, I uh, learnt a lot about myself in this show and uh, I almost don't want to explain too much about what we're going to talk about because I decided to go into this interview without having done a huge amount of research and developing a deep understanding before formulating my questions simply because I recognised that the work Sage, Rebecca and the Animas Institute do is... uh, quite far beyond my um, comprehension of uh, and and consciousness right now. And I'm very much a student and a learner and a beginner. So I wanted to go in with eyes wide open and curiosity. And I'm so, so glad I did. 
All I can tell you is that by the end of this show, you might find a greater sense of peace around how the world works, how ecology uh, creates systems and life and death cycles that are incredibly beautiful and peaceful rather than all of the fear and anger we tend to see uh, and we tend to try and impose into those systems as human beings. Uh, And uh, I found uh, out a little bit more about some of my childhood fears and the lessons that are now um, open invitations for me to Uh, go a little deeper in my own life and my own understanding of myself. So I'm just going to leave that show there in terms of, uh, in terms of what I tell you at this point, it's just going to be one of those that you'll have to just dive in and see where it takes you personally. Cause I think everyone is going to get something different out of this. I want to remind you guys that we have a beautiful and generous, Uh, free live in flow resource kit from Guy Lawrence for you guys, who was last week's show guest. He's been on the show a couple of times already and uh, everyone always loves hearing from Guy. So this resource kit, again, super useful right now. Uh, You have an in-depth webinar of the live in flow principles, four pillars to embrace, embracing change, awareness, acceptance, intention, and action. Three guided meditations, uh, two ebooks, um, and Guy's five step morning routine to start the day empowered, as well as Matt's biohacking uh, the body with sound. Matt is someone that Guy works with really closely uh, in sound healing. And actually, I went to a workshop that Matt was also co presenting with Guy at, and we had a sound healing that day, and it was exceptionally awesome. So all of that is free for you to download uh, in this uh, toolkit. And all you have to do is head to liveinflow.com.au forward slash Alex with two X's. That's it. That's all you have to do. You pop your email in and you'll be sent all the details and resources. So enjoy that. And I want to welcome all the new Lotox Club members. We've changed the format recently and the feedback has been uh, amazing. The theme for April is a guide to thriving through periods of stress and anxiety. We figured we'd start with something hypertopical and help our community access and be the calm in this uh, situation that tends to uh, manifest itself with quite a bit of turbulence, with quite a, a bit of uh, lack, separation, feelings that uh, we've been deprived from everything we love. How can we thrive in an environment like that? And uh, I, I've certainly learnt quite a bit about how to do that through doing uh, a lot of meditation work in my time. Um, and uh, I talked a little bit last week about Uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza inviting uh, his students, one of which I am, to learn how to be so in touch with the generous present moment that you can access calm in almost any situation, despite the turbulence that might be all around you. And I think that's a life skill that is um, one that I will treasure and do treasure often. And it's one that we wanted to make sure that our Lotox Club reboot started with very much front and center. And it's going to be the uh, subject of the monthly call that I do in our Facebook group. And it's also going to be um, 
the main theme of the free ebook that you guys get as a Lotox club member. Well, kind of free because obviously you've got to join the club and that is only a teeny tiny 49 Australian dollars a year. Uh, so we've made it a single payment so that you can just get it done and get in there and not have dribs and drabs coming out of your account. And we've moved it from Patreon for the simple fact that, um, because that is a US based company, anyone who doesn't live in the US seems to tend to get charged overseas credit card fees for that. And I wanted to make sure that we stopped that happening. So we've moved it on to the Lotox Life platform. Uh, and that's now a direct annual payment to uh, us. And for that beautiful support that you give us to keep doing the work that we want to do for you, we continue to support you with your goals. And so the very first thing that you get when you um, join the club is a survey link to let us know where you're at, what your priorities are, so that we're always helping tailor things to be as relevant to you as possible. And then of course you join the gorgeous Facebook group, you get 50% off all of the Lotox courses, uh, you get uh, the wonderful question thread with our naturopath Steph Hinton uh, every week. She does office hours and uh, you can just pop your question in the practitioner thread anytime during the week and she'll get to them um, when she's in session. And, uh, and we have a few little guests lined up that are just going to be for the clubbers. So that's a little bit about what it's like, but you have all the details in the show notes, uh, that you can have a read of, uh, as well as the link to go join the club. So, uh, I hope to see more of you there each week. It's a beautiful community building, uh, off of the community that has already existed. Thanks to the wonderful support. So many of you have given through Patreon. Um, it's not to say that you have to stop uh, contributing to Patreon. We still use those funds to support the podcast if you so wish to stay. Um, but this particular annual membership is the one that we're loading all of the resources and value into for you. So if you have any questions, you can hit us up at team at lotoxlife.com. Otherwise, head to the show notes today, lotoxlife.com forward slash podcast. Click on today's show and you have all the details there. And now I'm not going to wait, make you wait another minute for this fascinating conversation I had with Sage Magdalene, inviting us all to get to know ourselves and nature a heck of a lot more up close and personal. Hello, Sage. How are you? Hi, Alex. I'm very well. How are you? I'm really well. I'm very excited about this conversation. I did some, some work to kind of center myself and, and think about the journey we we're about to take, albeit not in the wild, <laughs> but it is a journey nonetheless. And I, I'm, I'm really, really uh, thrilled, especially after having spoken to the beautiful Rebecca Wildbear recently on the show. Uh, the work you guys are doing uh, to reconnect us to the natural world and our fellow beings is very exciting. And I think it's work a lot of us need. And I think to start, I would love to see what your life journey looked like to get you to doing that work, because it's not a, you know, you're not a doctor or a lawyer, let's face it. Like it's a little bit off the beaten track and there's always a journey uh, of a personal nature behind that. Yes. Thank you. Um, I took my dogs for a walk in preparation for our interview. So I had a little conversation with the little river and the mountains and the cottonwood trees where I live uh, before, before connecting with you. Um, 
I grew up in the Midwest, USA, in a smallish town, kind of outside town. Uh, my parents were very nature-connected folk. Um, my dad hunted birds, and my mom loved waterways especially. So they uh, brought me uh, into loving the natural world uh, in a good way when I was a kid. Um, I became a teacher and a school administrator from in my mm, 20s and 30s, was kind of my first career and uh, in Chicago area at that time. And uh, I didn't meet Animus Valley Institute until uh, about 2004, I think. I first uh, attended a program with Bill and Janine um, and a couple of other Animus guides. And at that time, I'd already moved to Santa Fe area where I live uh -huh. now. And for people who have never heard of Animus, can you just give us a little overview of what that is? Yeah, Animus Valley Institute. Animus Valley is in uh, southern Colorado in the USA along the Animus River. And Bill Plotkin is the founder of the organization. Um, you can have access to his books. He's published three great books. But um, it is a uh, what we would call a soul-centric wilderness-based, oh, it's hard to come up with the right words, but organization, uh, interested in bringing people, not only uh, nature connection, not only feeling they're closest with nature, but also discovering, mm, to use a, a poetic expression, the truth at the center of the image they were born with, or their mythic identity, or their soul purpose, or something like this. We Sometimes these things can only kind of be spoken of poetically, um, but Animus and Bill's particular focus is is that uh, is to discover through usually through nature or through nature connection um, to uncover or discover that uh, kind of central mm, identity that's beyond what we think of as our personality identity mm. sort of what we were what we were born for put it yeah, that way wow and so yeah. you obviously went uh on a lot of nature walks with your parents and then you go to this animus retreat yeah something must have happened there that made you kind of go whoa uh, and gravitate yeah what's it yeah, it did kind of, it brought me to my knees, really. The um, one thing about it was uh, I've, I've been a seeker, really, all my life, as, as many people are, kind of looking for something but not really knowing what. Um, let's see. Uh, one of the things about Animus is that the guides at Animus um, acknowledge that the natural world is actually the guide and that the human guides are helpers. And I hadn't really met any organization that had that perspective yet. Um, the other piece that was really uh, crucial for me was um, mm, this acknowledgement that each person has a unique and particular mystical relationship with the world um, that can be discovered. And you know, all my life as a kid, I'd been told by my parents, were good parents, you know, you can you can do anything you want. You're smart, you know. You could you could choose anything you want to do in the world. But what they hadn't realized and what seems to be missing in our culture quite a bit is not that I could do anything I want, but that I'm, I'm meant for something in particular. And by that, I don't mean a particular job like a doctor or a lawyer. Um, I mean a particular mythic identity that I would then spend my life embodying, spend my life living into that more deeply, which could come through in a lot of different jobs. Mm-hmm. Wow. And uh, as you were saying that, I was thinking, oh my gosh, I, I'm just 
picturing how horrific the little cheap Facebook quizzes are that people do, like, you know, discover your mythic identity. Um, and, uh, and it's done online and you answer 20 questions and boom, you're an eagle or whatever. Um, but obviously this is a, <laughs> this is nothing to do with that kind of a, a thing. Um, it just kind of popped into my head as to how ridiculous it would be that we would think we could discover that uh, with, through technology when really it, it's nature that helps us on that journey of discovery, right? Yeah, there and there is a deep hunger for for that mm, underneath there is. knowledge of yeah. ourselves. So we could understand why we would hope to get that through a, a mm. quiz or a, a magazine or something. Um, one way to look at it is that it's not something that you could figure out. Uh, but when but when we dis discover this this thing, um, it suddenly makes a great deal of sense. But we couldn't have you know through thinking about it, we couldn't have got there. So uh, we need to open up other uh, ways of knowing the world, which include conversations with dreams, conversation with wild nature, uh, conversations with the body, and the deep imagination, among other things, probably. Yeah, wow. And uh, when I was reading about the work you do, uh, you talked about having a gift for hearing and reflecting deep stories of all beings. And I would love to hear you kind of reflect, if you like, on a human story that you just, you heard so many more deep levels than the words that were being spoken. Mm. Um, so well, people can get an idea of what that actually looks like, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it might be a little tricky for me to give a particular story right now because I, I have confidentiality agreements. Of course. With no, 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 no names, <laughs> no nothing. But, but um, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I just got back um, a couple of days ago from a, 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 what we call a quest, an animus quest. And it's, it involves a solo time um, where a person is on their own in, in nature uh, for uh, three days and three nights usually fasting, not eating anything. Mm -hmm. And when they come back, they tell a story about, so what happened in three days and three nights? And of course we do many things. It's the whole thing is about 12 days. So we do quite a bit of um, preparation, looking at the dreams they're having before they go out, the big questions that they're asking in their lives, the conversations they start having in the, the natural place where we're, we're working. And then they come, but they, and then they go out on their own and then they come back and um, we sit in council, uh, the whole group, and each one uh, in turn tells the story of what happened. And of course, um, you only could have so much time in a council, you know, setting, but they'll, they'll speak for maybe about 15 minutes about what happened. And then um, myself and the other guide will, will mirror back to them, will reflect back to them their story. And... Um, uh, in a way, we're just telling them their, their story back, but we might have a little different perspective where there might be something that we see that they didn't see um, that will uh, support them in, uh, I don't know, dropping in a little deeper to the story. Sometimes somebody will occasionally come back and say, you know, well, nothing really happened. And, uh, you know, I just was sitting there the whole time and, you know, I felt this and I felt that, but nothing really happened. And, and it's really fun to kind of tease out from them you know, ask them some questions about, well, what birds did you see? And uh, what, what, um, uh, what kinds of 
things did you say to the natural world while you were there? Because we are encouraging a lot of a conversational approach to this time in the wild as opposed to a perhaps more meditative approach where they would just be focused on their breath or something like that. We really want them to engage with mm. the world. And it's so interesting when you say nothing really happened, like sometimes people say that. Um, it just, I instantly thought about the magic that you see when you tune into nature. Like, you know, you could say, oh, my gosh, at one point I saw this wasp dragging along a huge spider and obviously he was trying to, you know, take it back to a little burrow to have a feast and, like, big things are happening all the time. But I think it wasn't a Broadway play or a Michelin star dinner or, you know, all the things that we've built around ourselves, which, by the way, I really enjoy. Uh, But at the same time, um, to, to... treat nothing really happening in as a thing in the in the natural observation is um is yeah missing out on and so so at that point you then drill down to different things they saw sounds they heard so that they can peel back some of those layers and uh express what actually happened yeah, and that's, that's I love your example there because that is a really big thing, right? To see one creature, it's a life-death struggle. Between mm, I know, I, it always spider. just blows my mind when I see that kind of thing. Yeah, so, and those are the kinds of things that, that might not have received much attention that happened. Um, sometimes a person becomes so caught up in their own discomfort or their own um, uh, hope for something big to happen that they might not even notice the little thing that happens. Uh, and so uh, uh, attend, and your example is great of just like really uh, offering one's attention to the natural world. And what does happen? Oh, well, the moon went across the sky, you know, and every night the moon got bigger during this particular journey. And, uh, you know, many things happen. Yeah. So, um, and what do you think we, we gain by tuning? And what do you see happen for people in a positive way? when they start to tune into those things and, and realize that they are important happenings? Well, there's a couple of things. One, just being, just being in nature. Um, I think uh, there's a possibility of our senses opening up and then uh, having particular practices such as talking out loud to other beings, other than human beings. Um, it opens up a, a realm of, Mm, of the possibility of other people and I, and I use the term people not just for human people the wasp and the spider are people for me so the possibility that other people's lives are as important as our lives is a, is a pretty radical these days it sounds simple but um, how many people really um, how many human people uh, really respect the life of the wasp and the spider um, as, uh, as them having their own intelligence and their own interests and their own uh, desire to procreate and have children and get food and, you know, the many things that we need in our lives, they have just as much as we do. Um, so, um, so one thing that happens is, I suppose, uh, when people go out, they, they begin to feel more connected in the sense of the moon does move across the sky, Orion does, the constellation does move across the sky, and, and um, the birds come, and I'm sitting here all by myself uh, going through whatever I'm going through, and the hummingbird comes to me uh, at, this, at this moment and, and shows its plumage, its iridescent plumage. Um, 
so people begin to to open i can only i can can't really explain to you what it looks like when a person goes out for the three days we send them through a, a ceremonial rabbit hole and when they come back that when they come back to us, their their faces are so open. Of course, they've lost weight because they're they've haven't eaten for four <laughs> days and four nights, so they they look kind of hollowed out sometimes in a way. But they also look uh, awakened. Uh, they look uh, refreshed. They look. Uh, it's hard to describe what they look like. Uh, changed, transformed. And is the fasting to just remove the distraction of food and get them tuning in more to their natural surrounds? Uh, fasting also shifts consciousness, and so by shift consciousness, change our everyday way of looking at the world, of perceiving. Uh, by shifting consciousness, we make it possible for ourselves to um, uh, perceive the world in different ways, I guess, put it that way. And shifting consciousness could happen a lot of ways. You know, people do dancing or running or um, uh, lovemaking or uh, various kinds of um, uh, plant medicines, for example, that will shift consciousness. So there, you know, there's many ways, drumming, rhythms, trance dancing kinds of things. So there's lots of different ways to shift consciousness. Slowing down to the breath, like meditation is a form of consciousness shifting. Um, so, the, so the fasting helps with that, helps to uh, begin to be more open to the possibility that the world is speaking to us. You might say our goal in a way is for people to um, come to a place where the veils are more thin, where they can feel the world behind the world, the world beneath the world, uh, you know, because this world is much more than, than uh, what we see in our day-to-day -day living. Mm, absolutely. Um, so we, so we want to soften and, and we barricade ourselves against that seeing right? Because it's, it's, in a way, it's not safe for us humans to, to go where the veils are thin. Uh, it's like going closer to the world of ancestors and spirits and uh, the voices of trees or the voices of mountains. And imagine what it's like to hear those things and to perceive those things. It can shake the me that I think I am, that I've been busy, the life that I've been busy building. It can, sh it can shake my attachment to many things if suddenly uh, creatures that I just thought were sort of like objects have something to say to me. Mm. So I'm curious then, um, how do you eat knowing that everything is living or do you accept that life and death are a cycle and there's like, you literally cannot not have death by eating a bite of food and so you just release and let go and just try and eat ethically. I'm very curious to know the thought process of someone who is so in tune with the importance and significance of all beings, including plants, how that works yeah. for you. Well, yeah, yeah everything, uh, some would say that the, the world is um, the constant uh, lovemaking, that everything is making love with everything else, but it's also the constant... Um, devouring everything is is eating eating everything else it's it's uh it is you say it's necessary and it's beautiful you know so you might imagine um taking the life of something with a great deal of reverence whether that's a carrot or a, a cow uh what if what if that were done with a great deal of appreciation for the life given and the truth is that everything we have 
our clothing, computer stuff, uh, everything that we use in the world, our tea is, is something dies, our tea cup, something dies to make that. But, but mostly these days, um, people aren't, aren't attending to that. There's not a lot of gratitude given for the teacup and the, and the life that, lives that were given for the teacup, mm. let alone the Well, computer. and we often just keep trying to hate on each other for however one is doing it, whatever one is doing, which seems so sad. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Very interesting. It's certainly how I see things, the acceptance of life, death. I love your lovemaking and devouring analogy. I think that um, it helps bring about a bit more peace to the fact that we're in the world and therefore gratitude and appreciation um, and um, mindfulness and not too much, right, of anything, I'd imagine yes. would be a huge focus in that. Yes, and, and this also that everything is a transformation and how, how beautiful that is, including mm. death. Mm. Everything, everything is always uh, dying and if things don't die, things can't be born. So it's all, all quite a beautiful dance. Thank you. That was really yeah. lovely insight. Um, so you invite people to the <laughs> thresholds and open doors to other worlds. I would like to unpack what that looks like. <laughs> um, I'm going I'm to take you into my mythos a little bit. Oh, yes, my, please. Because my mythos has to do with gates and doorways. Uh, but I'm going to start before that with early childhood dream. You even brought spiders in, intuitively. Maybe you brought spiders into the conversation. But I, <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who knows me knows that I love all spiders except one form of spider that I ah. feel is my arch enemy. It creates so many feelings for me when I see one. feels like a big David and Goliath battle every single time. And it is, we have these huge, super fast huntsman spiders in Australia. Big, yeah. very fast, not dangerous, not at all. And I know I'm this big and they're this big, but they, they are my life's work. I honestly believe that somehow this creature is there to have me learn some things. And I will learn, <laughs> but I haven't learned yet. But I'm getting there. I do feel like I'm moving closer. Okay, can I ask you a question about that? Yes, Since you, do it. Uh, uh, what's your first time you remember engaging with a huntsman spider? So this is a classic story that, again, people close to me will know. Maybe the low-tox community doesn't know this story, so it'll be a, a funny one. Um, my grandmother, terrified of spiders, of all spiders, so I, I am not, luckily, but she really was. And she used to come for a couple of months every couple of years because she lived in Mauritius and my mum's Mauritian. So we're a bit of an internationally spread out family. And uh, she would come and spend this beautiful quality time with us and help mom drive us to school and do all those things. And we just absolutely loved having her. But one morning we were driving to school and a huntsman starts crawling, not even on the inside of the window, mind you, but on the outside of the window of the car. <laughs> she pulls up on the main road. We evacuate the car, leaving doors open, leaving car running. 
and we walk back home and mum says, why are the kids not at school? Where on earth is the car? And she says, there was a spider. And so, of course, I'm an eight-year-old girl witnessing this conversation, watching the fear of, of God in this woman's face. And, uh, mm. and that is my first recollection of uh, meeting a huntsman spider. Uh, and then I had one more uh, terror moment with an auntie. And the thing is, I had a lot of people in my life that weren't concerned by them at all, that would always talk about how lovely they are, how they keep the mosquitoes away, and they're very functional, useful little guys that you could kind of get to know and love. But uh, I never really have managed to find love for them yet. So that's kind of it. And then as I got older, I became more paralyzed when I saw one, I would become more and more fearful. And then I did some uh, trauma release work uh, with a wonderful practitioner here where you, you know, the body shakes and you do mental visualizations and, um, uh, and try and form a positive relationship in an altered state uh, so that you come back liking them and appreciating them, respecting them. And, I can honestly say now that I can quickly vacuum one up and put it in the garden. That's where I've arrived so that it at least gets to live in its home. But I, I can't share a home with it yet. <laughs> that I'm not very, I'm not very open to that idea. <laughs> I yeah. know there'll be people yeah. out there giggling because in Australia we pretty much have huge and scary looking everythings. Um, but I, I really am curious about those phobias that we build around ourselves in our big apartment towers of the natural world and how we can better make friends instead of allowing so much fear around one of nature's beautiful creatures. Yes. Um, well, it seems that spider uh, phobias are, are fairly common. I meet um, you know, snakes, spiders, sometimes bears, sometimes cougars. Are the are the probably the primary um, you know when we go in a wild place those are the biggest uh, fears that come up, ex- other than fear of people which of course is is very big too. Um, anyway, so thank you for sharing that that story. Uh, so in your in your story, your was it your grandma? Yeah, it was. Yeah, like the whole, like everything had to stop because of yeah. this. Uh, this big spider on the windshield. We literally uh, left a car running on the side of the main <laughs> road. I mean, that is crazy as a response to a sweet little creepy crawly on the outside of a car window. So, of course, you then you get yeah. these imprints, right? Yeah. That, was a big so that, is, that is so deep. Uh, you know, that fear is so deep in your grandma especially. Mm. I mean, uh, it doesn't sound like she ever had the ability to try and befriend that that dark other Mm -hmm. um oh she probably did have the ability she just had zero interest it was just she put that in a box that that was the thing she was going to be scared of her whole life and I think you know being uh, the gift of being someone who has um wanted to challenge my own awareness of things and try and grow and evolve learn um about these blockages that we put up in our minds. I feel fortunate that I am wired that way to have that curiosity to see if something could change. Um, so I, I would like to kind of have that as one of my life goals. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, we're, you and I are then somewhat linked as people who we might say spider has been courting us. 
spider mm. has been um, showing up in our lives and, and wanting to get our attention in some way. In my life, uh, I mean, this is one way of looking at things, right? As opposed to, I'm just really scared of spiders. What if spiders kind of knocking on the door of your uh, heart and saying, hey, I want to get to know you? Um, which is not a way that I really looked at it until I met Animus, I guess I'd say. But I, like you, uh, was working uh, uh, to get to know spiders um, uh, for most of my life. Uh, when I was probably four or five years old, I had recurring nightmares in which um, there would be a, a jar or a can that I couldn't see into. And I would know there's something scary, but I'd be compelled to open it. Uh, it's kind of like a Pandora's box thing. I would be compelled to open it, and just this river of big black spiders, uh, you might say huntsmen's, would come out. And I would wake up, you know, just really terrified and go, go to bed with my parents. But so I, um, I spent many years having both a fascination and a phobia. Like, you know, I would watch the spiders in the garden and, and be fascinated with them, but at the same time, you know, not want to get too close. Later in my life, I was still really curious about them, you know, and sometimes they'd seem, they would seem to seek me out, you know, like I'd be in a room all by myself and I'd see a spider over on the wall, would climb up the wall, climb over and then climb down over my head, you know, on its, on its web, you know, so it was like, why are you, why are you haunting me? Hunting and haunting. Um, so, uh, and I pretty much forgot about the dream, but I did continue to, uh, you know, continue to sort of be interested in and spiders. For, there was a time when I would, I was into photography, so I'd capture a spider and, so that I would be safe from it, but I could look at it, you know, and so I would photo, photograph spiders in, you know, in containers and things like that. Um, but when I was uh, doing a program with Animus at some point early on with them, I, I remembered the early childhood spider dream and, and, and began to work with it. And um, uh, it shifted my, my relationship, I did some sort of psychodrama work where I took on the, the um, embodiment of the spider because I'd really only looked at my point of view. I hadn't looked at what it was like for the spiders to be pouring out of that container, for example. What were, was there something they wanted to say? Were they knocking on the door of the container trying to get out? You know, where, and where, what were they doing in there? You know, so all kinds of questions uh, came to me. Um, and then I was on a... Uh, uh, one of my early vision quests with Animus. And there was a small, we had, we were in a wild canyon in the wilds of Utah. There'd been a lot of rain and uh, the little, little river was flooded, but it wasn't very wide. It was, you know, a couple meters across. And there was a, a stone, a white stone right in the center of the river that was sticking up. And, um, you know, it was about the size of a dinner plate. And, and on that stone was a uh, tarantula, which is a, you know what a tarantula is, B big hairy guy, uh, black. Uh, and it was, it was on this dinner plate sized stone, just like it would go and put a foot in the, in the water and get back. And, you know, and I was just watching it from one side, from one bank. And then suddenly it, it went into the water and started rushing down. And without really thinking about it, I... I leaped onto a, a stone a little bit further downstream and put, uh, cupped my hands so that it came into my hands. And I jumped out of the water and I just, and I was shaking because for me to hold a tarantula would be a big deal, right? And um, so I just lay down on my, my stomach and uh, with my hands out in front of me with a spider 
wet, you know, drenched tarantula in my palms and just uh, wept. So I don't just just mm. uh, felt it so deeply, and uh, it it crawled up my arms and went onto my back, and I had a, a, a partner with me. We were going to look for our solo places, and um, eventually he took it off of my back, and and um, and we went on. But um, the reason I'm telling you this about the spiders is because is I wanted to give you a little little flavor of my mythos and how I go by the the, the sole name of Spider Gator. Oh wow! So, the, so yeah, so uh, which came over some years, the understanding of that mythos, and it involves opening gates between worlds in a spidery fashion. So, uh, or for spiders even. So you can see that in my, in my dream, I was opening a gate for the spiders to come out. So even at age four and five, in some strange way, uh, my mythos was contained in that little uh, dream snapshot that happened over and over again. So I'd remember it. And then other things happened, which uh, uh, sort of highlighted the, the idea of gate between worlds and the experience of being one who is a, is a gateway person. So it's somebody who opens gates, who tends gates, but also who is a gate in some way. It's like my nature to be a gate person, but, but it has a particular flavor. You could say there are lots of people who are spider people. There are lots of people, and maybe they're weavers, for example, you know, that their focus is on the weaving of spider and and then there are lots of people who are gate people, but in my case, the mythos is the combination of those two, as best I know it at this time. Um, so um, I couldn't have put that, if, you, if I, you know, you'd ask me at any age in my life, um, what was the meaning of the spider dream? I couldn't have said until, you know, many other things happened, uh, many other uh, things unfolded in my dreams, in the, in the natural world. Um, in states of shifted consciousness uh, where I was shown, shown things. So, um, mm, so that's a little bit, so you asked, oh, how do I unpack, you know, being a gate between worlds? And um, it's not an easy thing to unpack in terms of talking about it, you know, what does it even mean? Um, but in simple terms, in terms of what I do at Animus, um, I am, um, inviting people into a different state of consciousness. I call it going through the rabbit hole. Uh, think of Alice going through the rabbit hole. Everything changes, right? Every, the chess pieces are talking to her. She's eating the mushrooms and getting big and getting small. And, you know, all the, the dormouse is there and, you know, all the, the right rabbit is there. So everybody's in this wild, unexpected conversation. So when we go through the rabbit hole, uh, our preconceptions of what the world is and how the world speaks change, changes. Um, and I don't know how it would look for you or who, you know, whoever comes. I, uh, um, I might not even know how it would look for me next time I go through the rabbit hole. But um, uh, so how can I do that? You know, how can I support people in uh, opening to seeing, perceiving, imagining the world in, a, in other ways, letting the world, uh, it's kind of like being vulnerable to the world in a certain way, being uh, vulnerable to um, relaxing our ways of seeing, our ways of perceiving. And it's a time when we couldn't need that more, frankly. 
where we're really just trying to make sense of everything by going to extremes and to black and whites and, you know, whether that's uh, politically or with the food we eat, we're turning everything into religious dogma instead of spirituality. And it feels like there's this safety, this false safety that is built into those extremes and a lot of fear in the grey and... In fact, it's all of the strength is in the grey if we all dared come to that beautiful, messy middle where there are so many different shades instead of the extremes. And so I'm feeling very deeply about that at the moment myself. Um, and just hearing you talk about the gift that is this type of exploration just makes me think, oh my gosh, this needs to be like prescribed medicine for everybody. Because <laughs> mm. yeah. often we can't arrive there philosophically through thought, discussion and conscious exploration. We literally need to dismantle, to rebuild. Yes, the uh, dismemberment mm. is uh, one of Animus's uh, things that we encourage when, when a person is ready. Mm. dismemberment of the known ways of being and the known uh, habits and attachments. Mm. And speaking of habits, attachments, fear, um, when you were talking about the common things that people are afraid of and you mentioned bears and cougars, in the case of bears and cougars and someone being completely alone in the wild for three days, what, I mean, what, how do you, like, what if one came? <laughs> What, how does that work? Have you ever been confronted by a bear or cougar and made friends with it or do you run away? Like I know that probably sounds super banal and um, practical thinking in a, a super spiritual conversation, but I'm like desperate to understand that detail. No, people, I mean, everyone, we, we talk to people about this before they go out on their own and, and people do ask this question, you know, what do I do? And there are, and there are uh, practical things to do if you, um, if you feel you're threatened. And uh, no, I have not been threatened by, I've, I've had encounters with bears, but I've not been threatened by them. And I haven't actually had encounters with cougars. I haven't had that good fortune, but uh, um, uh, others have seen cougars. Cougars are more... Um, uh, tend to keep to themselves even more than bears do. So they're le much less often uh, seen. You might see a track of a cougar and consider yourself lucky, you know. Um, but um, they're probably seeing us way more than, than we're seeing them. But if a cougar did, uh, say you're in a solo place and you're kind of, this is, this is your ceremonial place and you're planning to spend three days and three nights here and a cougar should should uh, approach you in some way the the sort of the uh, simple simple thing we tell people is don't run away this is a cat cats chase things so don't run away make yourself big and make some sound make some sound so that it knows that you're here and that you're a, a large you're not a prey animal you're not a baby deer you're not that it would ever think that but you know that you're not you're, you're not something to be um eaten which it probably knows anyway but um that's what we would recommend if you came into a situation. They also recommend that if you should be attacked by a cougar, which virtually never happens, uh, that you, especially not in wilderness areas, sometimes the, when the territory of them gets squished in um, uh, town areas, you know, they don't have enough, so they're starting to infringe 
human area and cougar area are starting to bump up against each other. There can be some problems that happen. But um, at any rate, they do say, don't, they say fight. Uh, if a cougar attacks you, say, they say fight, don't, don't play dead. Um, but uh, no, this has never happened, you know, in 30 years of animus's work. Um, either a bear or a, there have been bears that have come through people's solo areas. Um, but uh, a, a threat would be um, very unusual. So what I would also say is, is to say hello. And we say the same thing for snakes, you know, snakes is another, another thing that people can be afraid of and that probably more likely to meet a snake um, uh, to, you know, put yourself at a distance that where you're not going to be bitten and have a conversation. And this is pretty much what we would say about anything you meet, any creature or being that you meet. Uh, much of our work is around what's the conversation that you could have what would you say to them and how could you listen to them so that they might uh, say something to you? Mm. Beautiful. Amazing. And I dare say a lot of the beginning of that journey is doing that work to build up to being able to do that on your own for three days. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, do they get a tent? Um, <laughs> <laughs> In most most places that we uh, offer quests, uh, people use a tarp uh -huh. as opposed to a tent, and the reason for that is that it uh, it increases your connection. So if you have a tent with a screen, then you know things aren't going to come in. It's like you're in your little house. But if you have a tarp, okay, the rain you're not going to get drenched by rain, but but the the outside is right there. The bear, so if there was a bear, the raccoon, or whoever could walk right into you. Yeah. Uh, so it opens your connection. Mm -hmm. Amazing. What a journey it sounds like. Um, ecological reciprocity. This is something that jumped out at me when I was doing my research. And I really loved the sound of that. And we were talking a little bit about it before, I guess, the lovemaking and devouring analogy. Um, but if you could build on that, I think that there's probably still a lot more to say. Yeah. Well, I, it's this, another, this is another concept that has become radical, which used to be the way of the world. Mm. Uh, so uh, in an intact culture, uh, uh, earth-based indigenous culture, uh, there's, I believe, a uh, deeply understood natural reciprocity happening all the time. There's a way that the human community is uh, embedded in the in the. Uh, rest of the community, the water, the air, the trees, uh, the animals, the birds. Um, there are stories uh, that have come down through the ancestry um, that explain the relationships between uh, the various creatures and beings and, um, and humans. There are stories that explain uh, what humans are allowed to do and not allowed to do, what, what is... Um, dangerous for the uh, earth community and what is not dangerous, you know, how much a human could take, uh, what a human uh, would want to give back or should give back. You know, if I, uh, if I take a tree, what is the gift I give to the forest? If I take a fish, what is the gift I give to the river? Uh, if I take anything, which goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of eating things, right? 
or making things. You know, if I take some willow to make something, uh, what do I give back? Um, that, so reciprocity. So we are, our current human uh, world society seems to think that, the, that the everybody else that's not human is there for humans to consume. You know, just gimme, gimme, gimme. We're like, we're like babies. Uh, give me some milk. And when we're babies, it's appropriate. Yes. Feed me, feed me, feed me. But when we're mature adults, that's no longer appropriate. Then there needs to be a reciprocal exchange. Uh, some of the debt of all that we are given, because everything we have, we're given, given it, right, by the others. Um, everything we have should in some way be, there should be an exchange. There should be a, an appreciation of the gift and a, and a giving back. And it's difficult to even do that these days because, for example, I've got a computer. I don't even know who the creatures are that went to make this, the metals, the ores, you know, the, uh, uh, all kinds of things that go into to make a computer. Um, so in a car and, you know, every, so many things that we use have become so complex that uh, we're very, very far removed from knowing uh, uh, the cost of it all, the cost to the planet, the cost to the forest, the cost to the earth, you know, all the costs. Um, so ceremonially, when we go out, for example, on, on an animus immersion, ceremonially we have the opportunity to begin to scratch the surface of this. So uh, just to, uh, if I'm going to use a stone in my ceremony, I'm going to ask the stone if, I, if it would be willing to participate in the ceremony. And maybe I'm even going to go so far as to make something to uh, put in the stone's place. You know, so, so if I, I could carry this as far as I'm able to carry it in terms of reciprocity and make it a practice. And it's, it's a challenging practice in these days because of our confusion as humans uh, I guess I'd say about our rights and the rights of everybody else, you know, uh, it's, it's extreme. As you know, we're in an extreme situation. Mm, we are. So I yeah. think, uh, I think the regenerative farmers are teaching us a lot about ecological, ecological reciprocity and giving back yeah. potentially more than you take is really the goal of regeneration because we've moved beyond sustainable being enough because we've taken so much for so long. Yes. Yes. So in a um, ceremonial context, you can practice this. You can practice, uh, what if I give my tears? What if I give my grief? What if I give a poem that comes from me? Uh, what if I make something beautiful with my hands? And I could even ask the question of the, uh, the being that I'm wanting to reciprocate with, what would you like? What, what could I do that would uh, be well received by you? Because I think in the old times, people uh, do this because they were in such good communication that they know what the others need and want. They, mm. they can provide um, something meaningful. Yeah. And, and do you feel like it is fear that stops us from acknowledging the, um, what am I trying to say? like fear of what it might look like if we actually engaged as a wider society, uh, as countries, municipal, you know, every single level, if we started to engage in very intentional ecological reciprocity, do you think we're so scared that that might mean 
we lose the things that we've come to build around us that make us feel safe and, and that's what's holding us back, like at a deep level? Or do you think we're just moving so fast through life these days that we don't even have time to acknowledge that reciprocity, some of us don't acknowledge that that's even a thing we should be entertaining or I think it's, it's interesting times, right? So when you're talking, I'm like, <laughs> my brain is like having many, ex- many philosophical explosions about how we actually drive more people towards this. Um, yeah. Well, I think you've, you've landed on more than one thing the fear. Yes. And even, uh, something like a desperation that that this would not even really be considered it's not even in the mm, the realm of possibility Mm. or you know you know what i mean it's not even something one would many people would even consider Mm. yeah it is right Um, because we don't consider um, the whole like holistic uh living as progress we consider new inventions cool funky shiny new things as progress. Um, but progress to me is starting to listen to our Indigenous people again. Um, and that for me means progress. But for a lot of people these days, progress means winning and, and getting their say acknowledged as the thing. It's, um, it, yeah, it feels like there are tension points and there's this beautiful, peaceful thing growing and, uh, and I'm curious as to how we can accelerate that acknowledgement of ecological reciprocity and how, how much exciting creative thinking could be happening to drive us further towards that kind of a society if we used our most brilliant minds um, in science and technology to create design models that, uh, that um, take us in that direction. Yeah. And on an individual basis, which is um, Animus is now working some with in partnerships with organizations, but, but mostly the work is on an individual basis. The idea uh, uh, of Animus's work is um, going back to this idea of mythos or soul's purpose. Um, the idea that it, once one discovers that there is uh, nothing left in life but to serve that by embodying it, mm. and um, then then one's life moves from the gimme gimme, feed me feed me of the child, to the service of the adult and the um, authentic um, soul based service would by its nature be um uh it would be a radical differentiation from what's what the culture at large is up to Mm. so cultural so in other words cultural transformation or change agents are what animus hopes to produce through this work so when one discovers the truth at the center of the image one was born with, then embodying that is going to involve uh, cultural transformation. If I'm embodying that, then um, business as usual isn't going to work for me anymore. Yeah, that's right. Like, Absolutely. And do you get many business people 
into animas and doing the transformations? We do get some. We do get some uh, who who uh, uh, see um, the um, what you were describing. The the comp the competitive model is not uh, effective and. Um, that, that it's in attempting to do beautiful work in the world, what they are doing turns out to perhaps be more, more destructive. And uh, so, so yes, they're coming to find their, their true way. Mm, incredible. Which may or may not being in business. I don't know in the future, you know, because uh, the embodiment of soul is not, um, mm, it's not a, it's not a job anymore. You, mm. It might look to, to other people like a job, but it's no longer a job. Yeah. And I'm also curious about, I was reading about the moon and the work you do with people. And, and that seems to be something that you take people in groups online as well to, to help them um, follow a moon cycle. And as an artist, you use collage as uh, a tool for people to um, work through that cycle. Um, and I know that's a bit of a departure from what we were all, what we were just talking about, but I also feel like it's not really because it's just another tool to help us peel back some of these layers and see what starts to evolve as this collage gets bigger over the month. Because you don't start with like doing a montage on day one, right? It's something that builds over the cycle of the moon. Yeah, I've done I've done a lot of different things with collage. That is one thing to to play with um, adding to a collage one image a day over a moon cycle. Um, the uh, what I like about that is it takes us to image rather than to thinking or or words or language. It's uh, sometimes we say the language of soul. It has to do more with image than than with words. So I like that collage takes me right into image. And I do a lot of uh, playful things with collage. Um, like I imagine the collage as a kind of a world in which the different, th you know, you can put very different creatures next to each other. Um, uh, you know, you can have a, a grasshopper driving a car or, you know, whatever. Um, uh, you could have a grasshopper getting married uh, to a pediatrician. Um, so, uh, so I like to play with the combinations of doing quick work. So it's quick, expressive art that um, you don't have to have any great skill to do. You know, you yeah. can just cut stuff up and put it together. Well, it just takes the barriers down, right? It means anyone can yeah. jump in and do that. Exactly, and create beauty with it. And uh, so, uh, so I like to do things with it then, like, like uh, what would the grasshopper say to the pediatrician? What happens if I embody the grasshopper who's marrying the pediatrician? What, what, how does the pediatrician feel about the grasshopper? You know, to, uh, and you can do dance, you can do authentic movement, you can do uh, storytelling, you can do a lot of things. That's kind of like a, um, a playful way, like you said, of, of breaking some, mm, challenging some, some ways that we look at things and opening things up can play with dreams in that way as well. Yeah. And um, yeah, and Rebecca talked to us a lot about uh, how we can play with our dreams and work with them. It was fascinating. So yes. do you have a, a definite time where you take people on like a particular month of the year and this is something that you do so that people who are interested can connect with your work in that way? 
because that's something we could do anywhere around the world, right? We wouldn't need to be in America coming on it, you know, and I, I just want to try and open up a way that anyone could connect yeah. to this work. Mm. Um, I, ha I haven't got any of those kind of things scheduled right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so I can't, I can't say, you know, uh, no, of course. connect in this way to, to do this. Um, if someone's interested, they certainly could get in touch with me and I can, I can uh, help them get something rolling. Mm, um, awesome. But um, oh, what was I going to say about that? Um, mm. Nothing, nothing locked in, but watch this yeah. space. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious to know, do you follow politics? You keep abreast of things in that way. Yeah, I I think it would be pretty hard not to uh, to know the broad strokes of what's happening these days. And of course, I'm not I'm not trying not to know things. Um, I'm not a I'm not a news hound, so I'm not spending a lot of every day reading the news um, or being online with the news. But uh, you know, things things come into me. I fi I find out things. Um, oftentimes, uh, a really useful thing. Uh, that we do at Animus is invite uh, people to really feel the pain of not only their personal lives, but the, the larger things that are happening in our world. Um, this also uh, expressing and feeling great grief also, also shifts consciousness and, and makes it possible for other um, things to happen. So knowing something about what's going on in the world is, from the perspective of a guide is useful. Um, and uh, the lament of, of what's happening is important, I think, for, for me as an individual human to feel, but also for, for uh, the people who come to animus programs to, to begin to allow themselves to feel maybe more than they ever have before. This is one of the things that often happens on a quest is that the, uh, the deep lament, the deep grief about what's happening uh, to our human people, what's happening to our forests, what's happening to our rivers, what's life going to be like for my kids and my grandkids. Um, it's, it's overwhelming. And uh, um, there's a lot of uh, structure in us to keep us from feeling that a lot of the time. Um, so it's useful to um, to know something of what's going on, and to uh, and to let myself be shaken by that. Yeah, and given so many parents, especially, are feeling huge grief and overwhelm. Uh, us in Australia, we've just we are continuing to have a crazy summer where we've literally moved from one uh, natural disaster to the next to the next, and. Um, so swiftly um, and having a husband in the state emergency services um, kind of feeling helpless last month because he's not a trained firefighter, but then feeling like, oh my gosh, you know, we're holding people's doors from blowing in with these storms and floods, you know, and kicking into gear, you know, just emergency, emergency, emergency. And, uh, and then the onlookers who feel completely helpless seeing all of this emergency who aren't perhaps completely impacted in the sense that their house has burnt down or has been swept away by a flood, feel deep grief and sadness for the increase in all these storms and uh, what the science consensus is on climate change uh, and really feel it. And 
So I, I picked up on what you said there about how that's important to, to really feel that grief and, and let yourself feel it. I'm curious also to then know how we guide ourselves positively forward, um, acknowledging the grief, uh, because grief can turn into overwhelm, can turn into paralysis, can turn into therefore complete inaction because it just feels like nothing can be done sometimes for people. So very curious to hear how um, you might counsel someone feeling that right now. I would say to make some time and space in one's life, uh, a significant amount of time and space, and that's going to vary, you know, depending on what, what your life is like, but to, to feel it, uh, to uh, sob and wail, and um, perhaps even to uh, tell a being, an other than human being about it, uh, or, or a place that you love that could at some point be endangered by fire, for example, or flood. And uh, uh, so that you're sharing uh, your human fears of what's going to happen to my human people in this situation. But it's not just about us at all. No, not Noth at all. Nothing ever is, mm. although we think it is. So um, to share it with another other than human and uh, feel how it might be feeling. Because others, they have, uh, they have children and grandchildren they have connections as well. So, um, but I would recommend to really feel it as strongly and uh, cry. And um, if you can be with other humans who are, who you are comfortable to be with you while you cry. Um, yes. And um, my experience is that, oh, grief cries uh, make it possible to think more clearly, to make wiser decisions, to um, make more informed choices. If we're busy trying to keep that grief contained all the time uh, or denied or unfelt, that's a lot of energy that could be going to uh, other things. So I think we're less likely to become those things that you said, uh, mm. depressed or overwhelmed or whatever. I think we're less likely for that to happen if we let rip with our uh, lament um, yeah. some of the time. Well, yeah, because if you think about crying, and I remember interviewing a wonderful integrative cardiologist, uh, Stephen Sinatra, a couple of years ago, and he talks about crying and laughing being literally the two best medicines for the heart. Uh, and he has seen it time and again in his decades of practice as a surgeon and, uh, um, and you know, a nutritionist and all the other things he became because he knew just cutting open people's hearts and repairing them was such a tiny part of the overall picture of healing that needed to happen in a person's life mm. um, on a wider scale and it's a magnificent man. And, uh, and if you think about what crying and laughing do is they bring us into our parasympathetic nervous system state, the rest, digest, yeah. feel clear and, you know, over the other side of it, it can feel quite tumultuous and, and um, shaky while you're in it but it always ends eventually and, um, and then the clarity comes. Whereas if we let that energy be stagnant in us, you are in sympathetic, you are tense, you are paralysed. So thank you for unpacking that because it makes complete sense. Um, and, okay, so can I ask one more question in this realm then? Um, what if someone feels like they're in a loop where they can't get out of the grief? 
that really comes up a lot. People are, are afraid of being in a loop and uh, that if they enter the grief, they'll never come out. Um, it's not my experience. Um, it's not my experience that for myself or for others that uh, if, if it's my experience that if there's grief to be grieved and there is, um, then that's the absolute best thing for the body and for the whole being to, to just keep grieving. And you could, you could break, you could take a break from it, you know, (laughs) know? (laughs) pour a cup of tea, go for a walk, back to the crying. (laughs) Yeah. Do, do something light, you know, but, uh, yes. Uh, Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I think about it like a breakup, you know, you're not just going to cry once or losing a relative that you were so dear to. It's it's waves of experience for long periods of time. It is. Mm. It can be. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Yeah. Um, so, such a, so many little twists and turns. I love a fellow tangent queen who's just happy to go <laughs> where the conversation takes us. Yeah. I might finish by saying or asking really if, um, if you could call on anyone listening to this and there will be about 40,000 people who, from around 149 countries will hear this awesome. in the next three months, which is just amazing. And I think of that, the power of that collective of that many ears and hearts tuned into this conversation and mm. the opportunity you therefore have to reach that many people right now um, to dig deeper into connecting with our natural world this week in their lives, no matter whether they live in the middle of the most built up city or uh, in regional area, what would you suggest that they might do to build a stronger connection with the natural world around them? Well, one of the things I know is that we, it's hard to slow down a lot of times for even somebody like me who has a, a, a relatively quiet lifestyle can be hard to slow the, the wheels of the mind. Right? Thank you for saying that. I'm so thrilled <laughs> that even you find that challenging. Yeah, I, I have a, a teacher who talks about our love affair with mentation. You know, we're just so engrossed in the these thinking minds of ours that we forget we have bodies, right? Yeah. So, um, so I want to say, um, find a place outside, and um, if you can, find a place where you could lie down on the ground. And, um, you know, if it can be somewhat private, it helps, you know, but uh, if you find a place where you could lie and lie down on your stomach and really um, smell the earth and feel the, if there's grass or there's sand or, or soil or whatever's there, to really uh, feel the pull of gravity, uh, the uh, sense of, that you are uh, intimately connected with earth. And, um, and just breathe there for a little while. That would be one thing that I would recommend. And then, and of course, everything depends on how much time you're willing to give to these practices. But um, if, you, if you have time beyond, beyond just some breaths on the earth, um, I would recommend um, choosing a, a, a being that's other than human, like a stone or a tree, something that you like or, or feel attracted to, and have a conversation with it. And by that, I mean, uh, literally say hello. Like maybe you've been walking past this tree, you know, every day for 10 years and you've never said hello. So you might literally stop and uh, say, hello, 
tree. Do you know what kind of tree it is? You can say the kind of tree. My name is, and tell them your name, and then tell them what's going on with you. Like, but tell it like an intimate level, like, like something deep, like what I really long for in my life and what I'm really hungry for is, bah, 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 bah. or uh, what keeps me awake at four in the morning is, bah, 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 bah. tell, you know, and you might find yourself uh, shaking or crying or, you know, tell it with your whole body. Uh, let yourself uh, tell it in a way uh, you haven't before. Tell about yourself. And of course, that's, and, and just keep going. If you've got five minutes, go five minutes. If you've got more, go more. Just let yourself really kind of unburden yourself to this other. And then you might, uh, that's half the conversation, right? It's the way other cheaper half than is, going to a shrink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and uh, they probably know so much more than yeah, you have. Yeah, I was no, just no offense to, say, to shrink. No, the innate, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, they yeah. literally have no choice but to be what they are and who they are, these other beings. Humans yeah. have the choice. And I think it's why we've often given ourselves away to yeah. uh, things that don't serve us. So that's part one, though. Part two, of course, is to listen. So here, you know, I've, I've told you all about myself as deep as I can right now. Tell me about you. Mm. And now if it's tree, you're probably not going to hear it saying English. And, and don't ask it to tell you about you. So I'm not going to go to the tree and say, I've got this big problem. Would you solve it for me? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to say, this is what, you know, is making my heart ache. And I'm going to say whatever I have to say. And then I'm going to say, and now I want to know more about you. I want to get to know you. And you're just going to uh, listen with the senses, right? I'm going to hear and touch it maybe and um, smell it and look at it. Notice everything that happens. and then. Um, uh, I'm also going to notice any feelings that come and if I have a felt sense of my body, the emotion, the vibration, anything like that. And then I'm also going to notice if anything comes up in my imagination, like any images come up between me and this other one, this being. Just notice what happens. Be curious and interested. And finally, notice any other beings that that one is connected to. So if I'm talking to a tree, I know it's also connected underground. I know birds are living there, so it's, I'm going to notice if birds are coming and going. And then I'll just say one final thing. I don't know how the time is here, but um, it's fine. To, if it's a tree, uh, notice your connection via breath. This is very useful. So breathe out and know that the, you're offering your oxygen to the tree. And breathe in knowing that you're receiving uh, the... Uh, uh, oh, you're receiving the oxygen, you're you, offering the carbon dioxide. Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. yeah <laughs> That's why you hesitated, you're like, hold on. My science is off, but you're, you're exchanging breath, right? Yeah. You're, you're, the breath of life is there. So talk about reciprocity. Wow, that's very, yeah, that's beautiful. So simple. Mm. So these, these things, lie on the earth, breathe with the trees, and then enter conversation with somebody that's not human. Mm -hmm. And go make it a deep conversation and trust um, that you can learn something about them if you offer their your full attention. And you might praise them as well. Tell them what's beautiful about them. I love that. That's my favorite challenge ever issued on the show oh. in 170 gosh knows how many shows we've done. So thank you. That, yeah. was, that was really special. And I can't wait to connect with the community in the club that we have or somewhere mm -hmm. online and see what comes up for people in, in doing that experience. Um, Great. 
thank you for this incredible conversation. I feel like I learned so much. I've been given truckloads to reflect on. And, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it was a very generous um, spirit that you came with. So thank you. I feel like you've opened us up to the natural world in a way many of us wouldn't have considered possible um, living busy modern lives as so many people do. So I really appreciate yeah. your time. Thank you. It was a great pleasure to meet you. Another spider woman. (laughs) Another spider woman. Sisters unite. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action Uh, and uh, there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit uh, stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written over the past nine years of writing a blog. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added and I can't wait to see where that community takes us. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, You're going to get bonus uh, Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Today